Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the 75th episode of the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we're going to go all the way up to 155th and 8th Avenue today, talk a little Washington Heights and the Giants with a film distributor and Washington Heights native, Jack Finkelstein. Jack, welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast. How you doing, Sam? And welcome everybody else. And I'm I'm very happy to. Uh, it's been a while since I talked a little uh, New York Giants as well as uh, the upper part of Manhattan. So I'm happy that you're uh, able to do that for me today. But first, I want to go all the way back to uh, to your your roots. And I know that other than Washington Heights, you were born in Israel. Is that correct? Yes. As a matter of fact, in 1945, in those days, it was known as Palestine. I'm one of the few people whose birth certificate says the government of Palestine on it. Of course, after 1948, became Israel. And when did you move out of that area? Well, 1952, actually 1948, when it became a state, uh, my father put in for the documents to uh, to America. It took four years. Hmm. So uh, 1952, my father had to come first in February, get a job, and then... Uh, tough vetting process in those days and we came around september of 1952 so you said you were born in 45 so in september of 1952 you were about seven years old correct seven years old uh, way, way to get right into the thick of, uh, of of what america is like with all the baseball happening in new york at the time uh so where well, did you live when you moved to washington heights well most of the time was in the 162nd street 162 and Fort Washington Avenue. So we came up there, and uh, actually, um, from 1952 and three, uh, we went to Detroit for two years because they were hiring immigrants to work on the factory lines, a car factory lines. And then 1953-54, uh, moved back to Washington Heights and lived at 162nd Street, 162, and Fort Washington Avenue. Literally, uh, Manhattan and that part of the world is very thin. So one block this way, and you're uh, nearly at Riverside Drive, and one block that way is Broadway. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at the map right now. It's crazy how printed it is uh, these days. But, you know, some of these, these houses, some of these old houses have finally been renovated. And it, 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 for me, Upper Manhattan is one of the hidden gems of, of uh, New York City. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, many, many people, uh, I would say a lot of tourists who come here, they uh, love to visit Harlem. So where we lived, which is really kind of like uptown Harlem or downtown Washington Heights, because Washington Heights really goes over also around 207th Street, where you have a lot of Irish. I mean, in, in those days when we moved in, a lot of immigrants, most of the immigrants came to Harlem and Washington Heights. So uh, we kind of grew up in a neighborhood in the 160s with, uh, I would probably say, a little... A little more than 50, 60% just about were white, and the rest primarily were uh, what they call African-American, black, and uh, Spanish. Spanish in those days were primarily Puerto Rican, some Mexican. And so we kind of grew up in a United Nations neighborhood, which we loved. Mm-hmm. And what language did you speak when you first uh, came here? Only Hebrew, and um, a little uh, uh, parents would speak uh, sometimes Yiddish or uh, German in the house, so I knew a little bit of that, but 
When I came here seven years old, didn't know literally one word of English. It was uh, just Hebrew. So you, we kind of learned, at least I did um, English the uh, the hard way, you might say, I, on the streets of Detroit. Then later on, of course, most of the time, uh, streets of uh, New York. Of course. And and so, you, you know, when, when was the first time you uh, learned the word baseball? Well, coming here, I played soccer. As a young kid in, in Palestine, Israel, we primarily just played soccer. So uh, coming here, it was uh, it was a little bit soccer. There was uh, as even as a young kid, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I played in an Israeli team called the Maccabees. You know, since we were all immigrants in those days, we had a lot of immigrant soccer teams: the Greeks, the Spanish, the Irish, you name it. So we all kind of uh, knew each other, got along that way. And of course, uh, on radio, a little a little TV in those days was baseball. Of course, we'd see some of the kids uh, playing softball in the schoolyards or, or down by the, the three fields. You can't see it from the street, only from the water. There's three baseball fields down by Riverside uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in the 160s. And, uh, you know, you'd watch the kids play, and uh, before you know it, played every sport there was, softball, baseball, uh, football, you name it, and even a little golf for us. We wanted to try everything. <laughs> Well, was it uh, the idea of just getting encapsulated in all of American life, or was there uh, particularly something that drew you to baseball? Well, most of the kids played baseball. I mean, it was like that for about at least six, seven, eight months a year. And um, it didn't look that difficult uh, to me. And I guess, you know, you kind of did what the rest of the kids did. So we started playing, uh, at least in the streets of, of uh, Washington Heights, we played a lot of stickball, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our, I would say probably the first six, seven, eight months is mostly stickball and curveball, and we did that for money, uh, 50 cents a man, a dollar a man. We played against other neighborhoods. So uh, at least stickball was uh, was very popular from early in the morning till late at night when you could hardly see the ball uh, uh, coming down. Of course, in those days, we used Spalding balls, and uh, we'd go down to the basement and take some more parents would throw away old brooms, and uh, we take the ring off, and that was our stickball bats, old brooms. But uh, everybody loved baseball. Now, remember, 162nd Street, literally, we were about five blocks from the polo grounds, okay? And uh, so we'd walk down those, we're talking before, those famous stairs, and with a 50 cents with your G.O. card, you go down to the polo grounds and see Willie Mays and the Giants play. And uh, once you came in, I mean, in those days, you know, we had on our black leather jackets and floor sham floaters. So we, once you came in, we kind of sat wherever we wanted to sit. And, um, of course, you still had ushers there. And they let us sit where we wanted to sit because they didn't want to chase us away. But we were nice guys. Not like we forced anybody. But uh, we said, look, if the people show up, we'll move. Don't worry about it. So watching, uh, watching Willie Mays and the Giants play, or we walk across the bridge five more minutes to Yankee Stadium. And uh, in the 50s, early 60s, you'd watch uh, – you know, the Yankees play, you know, was Mantle and Whitey Ford and all those guys. So uh, for us, for us, baseball was great. Now, the Dodgers, we wouldn't, wouldn't, we wouldn't go to Brooklyn. That was too far. But in those days, remember something, there was no baseball teams literally west of the Mississippi just about. So uh, there's only eight teams in each division. So the Dodgers played the Giants in many games. So when the Dodgers came into the polo grounds, of course, then we would see the Dodgers also play. And uh, 50 cents, 
Not bad. <laughs> Is there any particular memory you have that really sticks out in terms of either the polo grounds or specifically watching the Dodgers play there? Well, I mean, most of us were immigrants. So the majority of people in this non-neighborhood were uh, giant fans. We didn't like the Dodgers too much, as one can imagine. And uh, most of us hated the Yankees. We, I mean, to us, Yankee fans were kind of maybe the well-to-do original kids who come from either Jersey or Connecticut and drive down to Yankee Stadium. And, you know, sometimes they wouldn't know exactly how to get to the Bronx and Yankee Stadium that they would kind of come down through our neighborhood, Fort Washington Avenue, and here you are, and uh, you see about 10, 15 guys standing in the corner. Father was maybe wife and kids get lost. They roll down a little bit. You know, excuse me, how do I get to Yankee Stadium? And the first thing we would do, of course, was send them to 125th Street, Lenox Avenue, which was the heart of Harlem, which, of course, we found real nice. I'm sure eventually they found their way to Yankee Stadium. But usually we just sent them to the heart of Harlem. What can I tell you? We didn't like it. We didn't like the Yankees then. So you would go over to, to watch the Yankees just because it was just extra baseball, but you, you definitely despised that team. Well, most of our games probably were Giants, but we did want to watch the Yankees play. I mean, look, these guys are always winning those days. When you have guys like Madeline Berra, the list is endless, Phil Rizzuto, uh, Whitey Ford. So obviously they took up a lot of the uh, uh, papers. Now, for me personally, I became. I also got to like the Yankees back in 1977. That was years later when I had uh, had tickets from Citibank. But we didn't like we did not like the Yankees then. Now remember also in uh, in Yankee Stadium, uh, we also saw the New York Giants football team play. Mm-hmm. You know? So uh, we we were all Giant fans. And for some of you football fans, a little bit who don't remember, there was a team called the New York Titans. Who were the Titans? Well. Uh, Three years after they were called the Titans, the New York Titans, first of all, the entire stadium would have maybe 500 people, most of us young guys from the neighborhood, and we would move along with the ball. You didn't have such seats. <laughs> when you have 500 people sitting in a stadium of 50,000, you kept on moving with the ball, and something else people don't realize. In those days, when you kicked a field goal or for an extra point, there was no net. So, of course... All of us would move back behind the goalpost and fight for the Duke football. And let me tell you something. There was more fights in the stands for the Duke footballs with extra points and field goals than on the stadium. <laughs> but uh, later on, I don't remember what year, later on they said, this is not good. We're going to put nets up there. So after that, of course, no more footballs into the stadium. But three years after the call of Titans, with 500 people, you're not going to make any money. So what they did was this. They hired a guy by the name of Joe Willie Namath, gave him $400,000, changed the name to the New York Jets, and, of course, joined the AFL. And that's kind of the, the background on that. So whenever I see the Jets play the Titans, to me, they're, they're, they're playing against their old name. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, and uh, for me, you know, being such a Mets fan, I, uh, I am a Jets fan as well, and I love that they got the name the Jets because of the, the you know how close Shea Stadium was to to uh, LaGuardia, and right. I I don't think that the Jets do as good of a job identifying with the fact that they're named after a plane as as they used to when they had a plane logo on their helmet. Yeah, but you know I don't, I don't remember the exact. You remember something? You have the Jets. Uh... 
and the Mets and the Nets, they all seem to New York have those kind of uh, similar sounding names to themselves, you know? Right. But of course, yeah. you know, once the Jets got uh, got named it, they became very popular and the stands started to fill up. Yeah, and the seventies were pretty uh, uh, low years for the uh, the New York Giants football team. What's interesting uh, about the New York Giants football team, and something I have mentioned on the podcast before, is that they are still legally known as the New York Football Giants, which for me uh, shows that that the New York Baseball Giants still have uh, uh, those types of roots here, because the you know, they, they used to just because baseball was so much uh, more popular back in the 20s when a lot of these teams were uh, uh, were, were uh, founded, they would just take the names. Like there was the Brooklyn Football Dodgers and there was the New York Football Yankees. Well, that, that that's true. But remember something, it's all about branding. Right. Like uh, some names you can't change. For example, a lot of stadiums today, the AT&T Stadium, this stadium, Staples Stadium, you know, I don't think they're ever going to change Yankee Stadium. Can you imagine if they took that name off and put something else on there? The well, iPhone Stadium wouldn't do it. A, I, I, I couldn't see them doing that, like, with City Field. I mean, you know, a part of me wishes it, it were called Met Stadium. Uh, but at the same time, like, like I understand that the Yankees are their own brand uh, in much, much the same way worldwide as AT&T exists or, or anybody else. You know, although these days, you know, I will, I will uh, right. definitely say that the Mets are uh, had this town's attention. Right, and even the Giants. I mean, the Giants are a branded name, so it'll either be New York Giants, as you were saying, or it'll be the Giants, but it'll never be the New Jersey Giants. Right. <laughs> Which is still so weird to me, you know. Uh, uh, but hey, it, it's just how it is. It's happening with uh, the San Francisco Giants playing Santa Clara. Um, uh, the Braves now play in Cobb County down, uh, you know, away from Atlanta. Uh, so it, it's it's just all about what you're trying to, what kind of market you're trying to pick up. Uh, and think about the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Yeah, well, if you go back even further, we talked about the, the, the Dodgers. I mean, as the population shifted to the West Coast, especially uh, California, and they started to move the baseball teams, well, obviously they took – Two of the most natural competitive teams was the New York Giants baseball team and the Brooklyn Dodgers, and they moved them both out there. And, of course, one went to San Francisco and one went to Los Angeles. Obviously, they couldn't move just one team out there who they're going to play. So they took, uh, again, naturally competitive teams, the Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants baseball teams, and uh, moved them out west. And that really uh, uh, helped move baseball throughout this country, you know, totally. Right, which is certainly a catch-22 in terms of, of what it did to this neighborhood. Now, uh, you know, when, when considering all of that, the Giants were not making any money, whereas the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Dodgers were more profitable than even the Yankees at the time. And the Giants were already looking to move out to Minneapolis, and which at, you know, at uh, the point that Walter O'Malley said, why don't you look to uh, San Francisco, because clearly we need each other. And they certainly understood you know, even though they, they hated each other, they, uh, they certainly understood that they needed each other. Yeah, no, you're you're right. And uh, obviously, I mean, money-wise, uh, the Dodgers uh, moving to Los Angeles was a, a big financial move for them. I mean, even till today, they'll always draw, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and the Giants, but of course, you know what it did to a lot of New York fans when you moved New York Giants and Brooklyn, especially Brooklyn, I would say, 
I mean, he used to call the fans the bums and so many names they had, but it was, it was their, their team. And, uh, I mean, I mean, people literally cried for years. And again, living in Washington Heights, we never felt that way. We, we didn't like to see the New York Giants, but baseball team leave, but the, uh, the Dodger fans really, I mean, took their team to heart, you know, really took their team to heart. It was just amazing. What what do you think was the difference? You know, being uh, a Washington Heights native, uh, and like you said, it wasn't as devastating as it was for for Brooklyn. From from your perspective, living in Upper Manhattan, what was the difference? Well, I used to think a lot of immigrants came. A lot of them first came to uh, Washington Heights and Harlem too, but mostly Washington Heights. Is a, I mean, to us, Brooklyn fans were kind of always the same. Uh, more more local residents, but every time immigrants came, Washington Heights, and and Washington Heights really changed more than any other place. I mean, we we grew up there in the fifties and sixties, and um, so obviously we played a lot of street sports. Whether it's uh, stickball, curveball, we played street football, two-hand touch, and later on, me and many of our friends also went to the Bronx Manhattan League and, and organized football. But slowly but surely, the neighborhood started to change. In uh, 1959, when Castro was taken over Cuba, a lot of Cubans, obviously, uh, who could get out, uh, came to New York, and they all moved to Washington Heights. So we became also a more of a mixed neighborhood with many Cubans in there. And we already had, you know, like Puerto Ricans, we had some Mexicans. And then um, the Vietnam War changed. I mean, my entire neighborhood in Washington Heights was drafted, including myself. That was uh, back in uh, 1966. Most many of us had two, three years uh, college by then, and uh, I mean, I went to uh, Fort Jackson, uh, South Carolina, Fort Gordon, uh, Georgia, in uh, Fort Lee, Virginia. A lot of my friends all emptied out different places. Many went to Nam, uh, some Europe, you name it, and uh, the neighborhood became, let's say, more unsafe because. Us young guys, as we say, we were the protectors of the neighborhood. And then uh, the neighborhood, you know, there's more more killings and all those things happen. And then later on, uh, many Dominicans came, you know. So uh, it became a little bit more uh, drug-infested. But George Washington High School, when I went to, I mean, in my day when I was in the soccer team, we had a great baseball team. And um, probably the best bat on our team was Rod Carew, who was one year behind me. And people like, uh, years later, Manny Ramirez went to George Washington High School. So uh, Dominicans are some of the best baseball players today, no question about that. So if you're a Dominican and you have a relative living in Washington Heights, as many do, you manage to go to George Washington High School, and George Washington, till today, has some of the best city teams. They're always playing against Tottenville for the city championship. And many players from there get drafted. So great baseball, but bad for football. Why? Because Dominicans are are not, you know, on average six two and weigh two forty. So as a as a big uh, George Washington High School being a number one high school, because we had in my day over four four five thousand students, but uh, they couldn't really compete in football, which I don't even know if they play today. You know, looking at uh, Rod Carew, who actually was in the news because he just got a heart transplant. He, he, he just got a heart transplant, yep. And it looks a like, 20 you know. 29-year-old guy who uh, who met him years before, you know. Yeah, it's uh, remarkable. And it, it's uh, lovely that he, he's still there and 
and how modern technology, uh, medical technology, could take care of him that way. And um, I never knew that he uh, moved to Manhattan. It looks like uh, they uh, migrated in uh, when he was 14 years old. Well, and, he came from uh, Panama, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and, and it looks like um, I'm reading some of the Wikipedia page. Carew played semi-pro baseball for the Bronx Cavaliers, which is where the Minnesota Twins scouts saw him. I, I had no idea that uh, Rod Crew had New York roots. Yeah, well, uh, again, he played on the George Washington High School baseball team. And a lot of these what they call semi-pro teams, uh, in, in the most most cases, like I played football in the Bronx Manhattan League, either you didn't get a salary or they paid your expenses. And it was just a place to show off your talent. And, uh, of course, he was drafted by, by, by Minnesota. But, you know, in those days, a lot of guys who played, let's say, baseball in high school were 500 hitters. The question is, who's the real 500 hitters, you know? <laughs> right. And, and you never know. But guys guys like Carew, of course, uh, I mean, look, Hall, Hall of Fame. Uh, I think he won seven uh, batting titles. Obviously, was was great. And uh, But it wasn't that unusual to see uh, guys like, uh, for example, Willie Mays would play stickball. They never played stickball with us because we were more on Fort Washington Avenue. He was a couple blocks up. And it was unusual to see a evening time, especially a seven foot plus guy walk in and say, "Who the hell is that?" I said, "Well, Lou Alcindor, who of course <laughs> later on became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but he was more Bronx, you know." Right. But, right. Uh, the, the neighborhood was like that. I mean, a lot of individuals who were good athletes played ball, and later on you'd find, oh, they were drafted by this team or that team, and in those days we'd read the sporting news to find out who was drafted and where they went and try to follow their careers. But, you know, as time went by, no more no more playing um, in the streets or anything else. But, uh, look, even even in the, the 50s, early 60s, I mean, gang wars, rumbles, 1965, three blocks from where we live, Audubon Ballroom, that's where Malcolm X was shot. And um, let me tell you something, the day he got shot, everybody in the whole neighborhood, Washington was saying, there's going to be a lot of killings tonight. I mean, everybody. Mm. Malcolm X was very famous. What tended to happen, they found out later that day that it was, quote-unquote, members of his own sect who did it, and nothing ever happened. Mm. I know there were a lot of riots after uh, Martin Luther King uh, was uh, was assassinated, too. And and just, you know, as a digression, it, it, it's unfortunate uh, when you look towards the 60s how all of these people – these people uh, for these uplifting movements uh, were were just taken down by the system, it seems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, when you grow up in a neighborhood like that, to others, it seems like, wow, this is not very safe, you know. But uh, we loved it. We enjoyed it. I mean, there was – we had more than our fair share of uh, rumbles and, and, and fights and, and things of that nature. And uh, But growing up in the Heights, it really was like home. We had our own parties, Saturday night dances in the churches and synagogues where we went to. Everybody knew each other because uh, we all played sports. So uh, it really was home. I mean, of course, uh, Miranda later on did uh, the Broadway show uh, Into the Heights. And, of course, uh, uh, later on he did Hamilton, you know. So, uh, I mean, look, if you go back even before my time, guys like, Henry Kissinger graduated from there, and, mm-hmm. uh, and the list is endless of the people that went 
as immigrants to that area and later on uh, went and did well. So um, you were talking about Willie Mays. Um, who, who would you identify as your favorite baseball player from the time? Well, good, good question. I mean, okay, I, I always, I mean, when you when you play a lot of ball, you enjoy sports. So I could enjoy what the Yankees did, but none of them were our favorite baseball players. We went to a lot of uh, giant games. So, I mean, Willie Mays would obviously have to be right up there. But me personally, I was also a Milwaukee Braves fan. So I like the Giants because I was five blocks away. But I, and don't ask me why, I don't know, but I always liked the Milwaukee Braves. I liked Hank Aaron and, and a lot of those players. So, um, I mean, to us, whenever the Braves came in, I would go there. And something else we would do that I guess we didn't talk about, when you went to see the uh, a baseball team play, we usually will go about an hour and a half, two hours early, bring our baseball gloves for batting practice. Mm-hmm. You go up into the left field, and always fight for the baseballs because the batting practice, they're always at home runs, at least into the, in, into the stands. So that was kind of a, uh, a thing we love to do uh, as part of that. But um, he, he did like Mays. And um, for me personally, I also liked Aaron. But I could appreciate uh, always good, good talent. And the Yankees had it. I mean, we knew that occasionally we'd go uh, into uh, see Yankee Stadium I mean, look, especially in the 50s, I mean, uh, I mean, these guys are powerhouses. And they always, they always got their best players, of course. In those days, the Kansas City team was like the Yankees' farm system. If mm-hmm. they wanted guys like Roger Maris, they gave him a couple of bucks. They got Roger Maris. Um, talking about Yankee Stadium compared to the polo grounds or contrasting with the polo grounds, you know, obviously, even though Yankee Stadium – from a field perspective, was bigger at the time than the current dimensions, which are which do mirror the the, um, uh, the renovation of Yankee Stadium. Um, but what was your take on on the odd shape of the polo ground? Well, of course, if the ball we always thought this, if the ball got past the outfield, especially like uh, left center out there, if the ball gets past the outfielder, somebody's going to have a uh, a home run that didn't go over the fence. It was amazing. It was it was big, but for us as fans, the smaller stadiums were bandboxes. You felt very close to the players. You know, you felt you felt close to the action, as opposed to later on stadiums, even like Yankee Stadium and others that have fifty, uh, fifty-five, sixty thousand. So uh, you always felt pretty pretty far away. Right. I mean, right. I think, I think today. I think Boston is still like that. You know, what, 33,000 fans, I think. Mm-hmm. Something like that, I believe. So they're smaller band boxes, but uh, for fans to go see the game, they like it. You feel very close to the action. Well, what's crazy is that it goes uh, Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, or vice versa. I'd have to look those specifics up. I'm pretty sure Wrigley is first. I might be wrong. Anyway. Uh, it goes yeah. Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, then Dodger Stadium now, ironically. Yeah, and, and you know, for Wrigley Field, I think they got their lights. I forgot how many is later, but all their games used to be day games. Right. And I was reading a biography of uh, Larry McPhail, who uh, not only uh, was the GM of the Dodgers early on, but was also the GM of the Yankees during those uh, the, the 50s and the, the late 40s, early 50s. And... Um, 
uh, reading some, like he was a pioneer of bringing uh, night baseball around. And it's just so funny to think uh, how there were uh, detractors at the time who thought that night baseball would ruin baseball as we know it. Well, to, to certain degrees, some say yes. But, you know, I mean, in those days, TV and radio started to uh, change day games to night games and everything else. As more people, more people watched the uh, uh, the games. Yeah, I mean, imagine this. You literally had to go see a baseball game to see it. Most games were not on TV. From my recollection, maybe an occasional a Saturday-Sunday game. Most most of the games we listened to in Washington Heights was on radio. You know, first of all, we were pretty up high. And if you didn't mm-hmm. go to the game, every one of us had the radio, a little transistor radio, and you listened to the game. It was not unusual to have five radios going on at the same time. And we also, uh, because Washington Heights is pretty up high, we could pick up other games like Pittsburgh and uh, other cities. So till today, I'm a, uh, I listen to a lot of games on the radio. Yeah, I, I have my uh, um, the uh, the MLB at bat application that allows me to listen to all the games. And uh, you know, sometimes, like the other day, I tuned into the Phillies and, and the Nationals and. Um, I, weirdly enough, and maybe some Mets fans would disagree with me, but I, I always choose the, uh, the, the Phillies radio, uh, broadcast as opposed to the Nationals, because I just despise the Nationals. At least the Phillies have earned something <laughs> over the years at this point. You know, it, it's taken them 120 years to get to where they are, as opposed to the Nationals, who just recently moved. Well, well, we're getting oh, to that, the, uh, that's true. I'm, We're getting to the end of the show, Jack, and I, I want to thank you very much for, for joining me, and you are welcome back anytime. We will certainly continue this another time. All righty. Thank you. Interesting for me, too. Makes me think about the good old days. The good old days, and I look forward <laughs> to following up with you uh, on that. So thank you, uh, Jack. And, all righty, Sam. Again, I thank you. And thank you to uh, all for listening in today, and we will uh, catch you next time on the Bedford Sullivan Podcast. Take care. All righty.